0: Thanks so much, Holly, for reading the Bible for us this morning, and um, welcome again. It's always so good to see each one of your faces here every Sunday morning, and just especially if you're if you're brand new. I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for for coming this morning, for being with us, for for choosing to worship with us. And as we uh, look at this passage that Holly read for us, I'd love to start and just. Ask for God's help um, as we look at it to understand it. that he would be at work among us uh, as we look at this passage of Scripture. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, um, we're so thankful that you have, uh, that you've given us not only um, yourself and, and your word, but that that word contains um, guidance for how we're to actually live our lives. And as I look at a passage like this, it just gives us really tangible handles for, for how you've designed life to work. And uh, so we pray this morning that as we look at this passage, that you um, would help us to see areas where where our lives don't yet conform to that pattern, that you would affirm us in the areas that they do, um, that all of us would feel both challenged and encouraged by the work that you're doing uh, in and through uh, your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this season uh, is uh, is the commencement season. As Melody mentioned, she just got to go to Crystal Ray graduation, and uh, probably many of you here this morning have walked uh, through um, a, a graduation service in your life or attended one recently. This is the time that we do that. And uh, commencement ceremonies feature uh, the perennial um, kind of centerpiece of the event is the the commencement address. And uh, many of these addresses, honestly, they, they aren't that interesting, uh, and they usually seem way too long on an event that is already a really long event. Thankfully, that's never true of sermons, so you don't ever have to worry about that here, um, not being interesting or being too long. Um, but there are always a few commencement addresses every year that really rise to the surface um, and, and kind of stay as lasting, uh, they leave a lasting mark. And one of those commencement addresses was David Foster Wallace's 2005 commencement address to the graduates of Kendon College. And it actually made a recent list in Time Magazine as one of the best uh, top 10 commencement addresses. And in this address, David Foster Wallace, who passed away, um, but in 2005, he gave this address. And though he's not a Christian, didn't have a Christian worldview or faith background, makes some profound observations about worship and about what worship is and, and how it works. I just want you to listen to what he says here. He says, because there's something else that's weird... He says in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. He says everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. Isn't that an interesting observation? He says if you worship money and things, if then then, uh, if that's where you get your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough and you will never feel like you have enough. He says that's the truth. He says if you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. He says if you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to numb your own fear. He says if you worship your intellect, being smart... You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But then he says something else which I think is really profound. He says, but the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are the default setting. They're the kind of worship you gradually just slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what it's doing. Again, David Foster Wallace, he's, he's not a, a person of faith um, that, we, that we know of, and yet he makes these profound observations about how worship works in our lives. And there's two things that we, that we can't miss um, from what he says here. And they are, first, that, that everyone worships. That the only choice we have is what we worship, but we are worshiping creatures. And second, I think it's important to recognize that worship can't be contained. It progressively and often even unconsciously takes over every aspect of, of our lives it becomes our default setting you see worship can't be contained and in this quote david foster Wallace gives us several quick sketches of what our lives look like if we worship money or beauty or sex or power or intellect and he's clear that all of these things will will eat us alive that they will enslave us and destroy our capacity for for living a life that's marked by compassion and sacrificial love for others And he argues that the only way we can live a life that isn't eaten alive in this way is to worship what he calls some sort of God or or spiritual type thing. You see, Christians believe that, that that God or spiritual type thing is God supremely revealed in the person of Jesus. At the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, we're coming to the very end of it, but at the very beginning, the author writes this about Jesus. He says, God has spoken to us by his Son, that is Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the question is, what does a life that's shaped by the worship of Jesus look like? If you were to make a quick sketch of that sort of life, of a, of a life that the worship of Jesus spills into and, and touches every part of, what what would it include? What would it look like? Because worship can't be contained. Genuine worship overflows into every part of our life. It affects every facet of who we are and how we live our lives, not just a few hours here on Sunday morning. And in this passage that, that we're looking at this morning, the author of Hebrews gives us a sketch. It, it's, not a, it's not an entire, complete painting, but he gives us a sketch of what a life shaped by the worship of Jesus looks like. And it focuses on three key areas that that are actually some of the most vital areas and also some of the most difficult ones to follow Christ in. So so what are those three that he highlights in this text? The the first is how we relate to people. And then secondly, how we relate to, to marriage and to sexuality. And then finally, how we relate to money. And so, so thankfully, all those are really easy and non-controversial things to talk about on Sunday morning in church, so uh, this will be a really comfortable, uh, easy, easy morning. Um, so, so ha- but hang with me as we look through, because these are some of the hardest areas to follow Christ, some of the most difficult areas of discipleship. But, but if worship truly can't be contained, then it's got to shape even these places where it's the most difficult to follow Christ. If it spills over to everything, we've got to talk about these parts. After all, this is where the text takes us. If I was picking three things to talk about this morning, these wouldn't be the three probably, um, but this is what the text has led us to. And, and the other thing is, if we can figure out how to worship Jesus in, in these difficult contexts, in these harder places, then actually probably the rest of life, maybe that becomes more natural So this is what we we see in verses 1 through 3. The first thing we see is how the worship of Jesus affects how we relate to other people. And and take a look at those verses again. They're on page 1009 in the Pew Bible. The, The author says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And then he says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also... In the body. And the Hebrew writers point out three specific groups of people here people who are inside the church, the the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, people who are strangers, and then people who are imprisoned and mistreated. And so, how does one whose life is shot through with the worship of Christ, who is shaped in all ways, how does it relate to each one of these groups? Well, first of all, people inside the church, if you are a Christian, if you've trusted Christ, if if you're clinging to him as your only hope, then you are in a new family. You have been adopted as a child of God, and you have a new family. Uh, Theologian J.I. Packer describes being adopted into God's family as the highest privilege of the gospel. As God's adopted sons and daughters, Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And the author calls this congregation to in the same way, not to be ashamed to call one another brothers and sisters, but to let brotherly love continue. The, the city Philadelphia, that word means brotherly love. And the word describes the, the, the love that brothers and sisters have for one another, the affection that is there simply because you're in a family. Uh, a few weeks, or actually just yeah, a few weeks ago, I received an update from one of our ministry partners in kenya it 's a group of, of church planning pastors who are starting churches in some of the most difficult areas of, of the uh, northeastern part of kenya and In this update, the leaders were describing recent conflicts in the area that had kind of unfolded along tribal and ethnic lines in this part of kenya and One of the leaders lamented in this this update that the blood of ethnicity is stronger than the water of baptism. That's what he felt like. the, the, The blood of ethnicity was stronger than the water of baptism. These conflicts were even dividing Christians in the church. But this is not how it ought to be. For Christians, the water of baptism is thicker than the blood of family, or race, or tribe, or neighborhood, or class, or tax bracket. When we're adopted into God's family, that becomes our primary identity. And just as your earthly family, you don't get to choose them. Uh, you don't get to choose who your brothers or sisters are, or who your mom and dad is. In the same way of the family of the local church, you don't get to choose either. In fact, some of you are probably thinking, "I wouldn't want to go to church with some of the people here here this morning. I don't, I don't like some of these people. I've been hurt by this person." You don't get to choose the people. You see, because God defines your family. God defines your family. This means that, they, that there probably have been, or maybe there are currently, or I can almost guarantee that in the future there will be people in this local church family, people who are sitting around, sitting around you here this morning who will, will hurt you in some way, who will be awkward to talk with, people that you won't like, but we're to let brotherly love continue. But, but this family, this, this local church family, it isn't all about hardship or, or pain, though. It's also a delight and a support, and it's about acceptance and joy. As a church family, we, we pray for one another. We party and celebrate together with, with one another. We cry with one another. We sacrifice for one another. We, we help one another move. We, we watch one another's kids. We, we serve together. We help one another make end meets, ends meet. This is what a family does. And God, when we worship Him, defines who our family is now. And if we worship Him together, we're supposed to be a family like that. And so, so we, do we love the people of our church? Do we love the people of our local church family? Are we, are we working to get to know them? Are we growing in our trust and love of one another in our church family? Are we working through difficulties in relationships, or are we quick to walk away to go to a different place, to to leave that community group or or go to a different church just because of a conflict. Well, well, next, the author mentions showing hospitality to strangers. And, and hospitality was particularly important in the first century because at that time, hospitality literally involved welcoming, s- traveling strangers into your home. Because you see at that time, there were inns, there were kind of hotels, but they were almost always places of sort of ill repute and even places of, of danger where you might be putting your life at risk uh, to stay in one of these places. And I think even today we feel the vulnerability of, of traveling to a place we're unfamiliar with and having to kind of stop at a motel along the road somewhere. Um, Rachel and I recently, when we were road tripping out to Scottsdale, did this kind of for the first time as a couple. So we were driving through the night and we, we got to Tucumcari, New Mexico, and and our GPS had just kind of. We said we want to make it that far this night. It was 1.30 in the morning, and we just kind of ended up driving into the center of town, and it was super dark. And the only motels we saw were kind of these 50s and 60s area, like Route 66 motels. And only about half of them were open. The other ones were kind of abandoned. And it was, it was clear, like, we're, we're not, with our 5-month-old baby, staying in any of, of these places. Um, but then, thankfully, you know, Google Maps plus TripAdvisor and, you know, we were able to find an Econo Lodge in the newer, better part of town. And, and honestly, the Econo Lodge seemed like the Ritz compared to the places we were looking at um, before. And, and we ended up having a good place, and we went on our journey um, but, but in the first century, there was no Econolodge. There was no, no TripAdvisor. You couldn't, uh, you know, go on and check out. Basically, all you hope could rely on was like a really, really early beta version of Airbnb. You're just showing up at someone's house and, and staying in a room. Um, but what this means for us is in showing hospitality to strangers it isn't necessarily putting your house up on Airbnb and renting out a room to someone. But, but it does mean getting outside of your comfort zone to show love and care to strangers who are around us, people that you don't know. And hospitality is difficult because it fights against the desire that we all have to be comfortable, to be safe, to stick with the people we know. Because there's nothing easy or comfortable about inviting strangers into your home, inviting strangers into your life. There's nothing easy or comfortable about it. I don't care if you're the most outgoing, energetic, extroverted person. It's still hard to do that. But it's worth it. Uh, recently, Rachel uh, finished reading a book by a woman named uh, Shauna Nyquist. It's called Bread and Wine. It's kind of about hospitality and, and welcoming people into your home. One of the concepts that, that Shauna develops in the book that's been so helpful to us is what, what she calls being present rather than being perfect. Being present than rather being perfect. She says, "You know, so often our approach to ho- hospitality, when we want to have people into our home, it becomes about us hosting the perfect event." Rather than achieving the true goal of hospitality, which is that people would leave feeling loved and refreshed. And Shauna writes that she's increasingly trying to choose being present over being perfect, choosing quality over quantity, relationship over rushing, people over pressure, meaning over mania. And those are good words to remember as we seek to show hospitality. Also, it's interesting to note here that that the author mentions angels. Did you catch that? He's like, and also by some, uh, unawares, they've they've served angels in this way. And I love what Tim Keller says on this point. He's a pastor in New York, and he makes this great observation. He says, if you go out looking for angels, all you're going to find is strangers. But if you go out looking to love for and care for strangers, you may just encounter angels. Angels. So, so after, um, the, the question for us then is, after thinking about this, is, is do we extend love and care to those who might not be able to repay us? Are, are we taking risks of inviting new people into our lives to care for, to love them, to provide places where they can feel refreshed and known? And so then after calling his readers to continue in this brotherly love, to show hospitality to strangers, uh, then he encourages them to remember those who are imprisoned and mistreated and remembering here means more than just kind of calling to mind it means taking care of or seeking to make that care practical and tangible for those that you're remembering and the community that this message this letter this sermon was originally given to many of them had suffered for their faith they had been in prison they had been marginalized or mistreated neglected for their faith And the author reminds his readers, don't forget about those who are still experiencing these things, both in your own community and other places where Christianity is spreading. And it's interesting the reasoning he gives for this call to empathy, isn't it? Did you you notice it in verse 3, the reason he says this? Uh, Look look again at verse 3. He says, Remember those who are in prison, as though you were in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. The, the reason he gives is, is since we are also in the body. And, and the body here probably refers not so much to the metaphor as the local church, the body of Christ. I'm going to talk about the church as the body of Christ. But, but really, I think he's referring to our literal physical bodies. He says the author is in essence saying, he's saying love your neighbor as yourself. He says you know what it's like to have a body. You know what it's like to feel hungry, to feel pain. Remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are mistreated. You have a body, too. You, you know what it's like to suffer in those kinds of ways. Remember them. So, so today, right, right now, as we sit here in Kansas City, uh, in this room together, there are thousands of, of men and women, of, of boys and girls around the world who, who are suffering, who are mistreated, who are imprisoned for their faith. Uh, Many of you are aware of the the story of Miriam Ibrahim, a a Christian woman in Sudan who just gave birth to her second child while in prison and has been sentenced to death in an Islamic court for refusing to renounce Christ. I've also mentioned a number of times on Sunday mornings Farshid, an Iranian pastor who's currently serving a prison sentence in an Ebon prison in Iran, one of the brutalest prisons there. And Farshid and Miriam are representative of the plight of many, many more followers of Jesus around the world. So, so do we remember them? Do we follow their stories and, and, and pray for them? Or do we take action when there's the opportunity to do so? And here closer to home, how do we respond to those who are, who are mistreated, um, whether for their faith or, or just even for broader reasons? How do we respond to people who are mistreated? Uh, again, when we were on vacation, Rachel and I read a book out loud in the car. We had this 40 hours, you know, 20 hours there and back to, to read, and Rachel read aloud the book uh, Wonder, and I don't know if any of the kids have read Wonder, but it's a, it's a great story. It's about a little boy uh, going into the fifth grade named Augie, and he's going to a new school, and in, and in many ways, Augie is just like any other fifth grade boy. He loves Star Wars, he, he loves to hang out with his friends um, at lunch, but in, in other ways, in one key way, he's very different, and due to genetic disorder his face looks very very different and there's one girl in the story and her, her name is summer who despite augie's appearance befriends him and stands with him even when other kids mock or simply stay away and we all have people like that in our circles in our workplace in our school who who are on the margins who are mistreated for one reason or another How are we remembering them? How are we caring for them? You see, remember, worship can't be contained. Your worship of Jesus spills over into all of these ways, into the ways that you interact with with all of these different groups of people. Well, then in verse 4, the author turns to um, marriage and sexuality and how the worship of Jesus affects these areas. He writes, Let marriage be held, this is verse 4, in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And in marriage, he says, is to be held in honor. That language of honor means to highly prize, to treasure, to value. And, and notice that it's not just to be held in honor by those who are in the church, but he says, marriage is held, let it be held in honor among all, among all people. In the first century, this was not the case. I mean, marriage was, was very varied uh, in terms of how people understood it and, and participated in it. And, and even today, as descriptions and definitions of marriage continue to change under U.S. law, it's important that Christians continue to bear witness to the goodness of God's design for marriage between a man and a woman for life, to treasure it, to honor it, to nurture it. And when we honor marriage by by being faithful uh, to a spouse, if you have one, to to not doing anything, to to break up another person's marriage. And again, for us as modern people living in Kansas City, hearing these words about marriage and about sexuality, they, they seem hardly plausible oftentimes, much less actually livable. Can we actually live this out Is this is this even possible? And, and when I think about that, I often think of, uh, of a moment when I'm, when I'm driving in the car uh, and, I, and I'm flipping through the radio stations and the Miley Cyrus song, We Can't Stop, comes on. It's, it's one of my favorite Miley Cyrus songs. Um, <laughs> And the sentiment of the song is actually really appealing. If you've heard the song, the, kind of the chorus goes, it's our party, we can do what we want. It's our party, we can say what we want, we can love who we want, we can kiss who we want, we can sing what we want. It's, it's our party, we can do what we want. It's our house, we can love who we want. It's our song, we can sing if we want to. It's my mouth, I can say what I want to. But the question we have to ask, though, is, is whose party is it really? Is it our party? Is it our house? I mean, if it is, Miley is exactly right. that We should and we ought to do whatever it is that we want. But what if it isn't? I mean, what if God does actually exist and, and he's made us? What, what if all of this is, is, is his party? If this is, if this is his house, if, if the world, even our bodies, don't really belong to us at all? You see, then everything is different. You see, our our, our culture um, sees sexuality in so many different ways. But fundamentally, our sexuality is religious. And we tend to fall as a culture into one of either two extremes when we think about sex. Either it's completely irreligious, it has nothing to do with our spirituality, it's just merely bodily function, it's nothing having to do with any part of our spiritual lives. Or we make it sort of completely divine that that sex is God, that it's everything. And we are addicted to it, we worship it, we put it everywhere. But you see, the gospel is actually much more nuanced than that. It says that your sex life is deeply spiritual, but as a means to worshiping God, the creator and designer of sexuality. And sex is a picture of how God relates to you. God does not share himself with anyone he's not willing to die for. He's not selfish like that. You see, we should not have sex with anyone we aren't willing to share absolutely everything with. Our money, our home, our children, our lives everything. In other words, marriage. And also, your sexuality is communal. We tend to say that, no, you should be able to do with your sexuality whatever you want. But if you really want to worship God with your sexuality, it's communal, not individualistic. You see, sex is sacred, and it's definitely personal, but it's not private. I love what Wendell Berry, he's a great author, a great observer, he says, sex like any other necessary, precious, and volatile power that is commonly held is everybody's business. Let me read that again. Sex like any other necessary, precious, and volatile power that is commonly held is everybody's business. This means that your sex life affects everyone else here It means that in in your sex life, your your purity, your chastity, your your goodness and following God's design is either a gift to the whole community, to your spiritual family, or it's a poison. You can't, it doesn't just exist in isolation. It affects everyone. Now there are other something else here that that is almost hard for us to to swallow as as people here in the, the 21st century. But it says that God will judge the adulterers, and the sexually immoral. And there's two really important things to note about that. First, it says that that God, not not you or me, that God will judge. We need to keep that in mind. But then second, this means that our role is, is not to judge, but to invite. Because God will judge, but he's also made a way of escape from that judgment in Christ And so so our role is to lovingly and winsomely call people to call one another when we fall and fail, to call one another back to believing the gospel, to treasuring Christ above all else, to to take hold of life that is truly life. So the question here is, is do we really believe that marriage is important? Is, Is it God's design or is it a social construct? Are we failing to honor marriage either intentionally or unintentionally? Okay, now, if that wasn't sort of awkward and invasive enough, um, now let's talk about money. Because um, then that's where the author goes next. He says, then he says in verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what's really fascinating here is that, that the author puts these two things right back to back. Because you see, in the first century, sort of the pagan people in the Roman Empire, they were incredibly promiscuous with their bodies, and were very, very stingy with their money. But Christians who were transformed by the gospel, they they completely transformed this. They completely reversed it. You see, they were radically stingy with their bodies, reserving them only for their spouses. But they were incredibly promiscuous with their money, sacrificially being generous and giving money away to those in need. And see, often Jesus will answer the question as you read the Gospels. He'll answer questions about how do I inherit it in life or what does it mean to follow you, Jesus, or, or how do I worship you? Often he'll come back with a response about money. And why is this? Because, uh, because the love of money is really never ultimately about money. It's ultimately about something deeper. It's about comfort or security or control. And honestly... <laughs> The greatest area of fear in my life, I'm, I'm talking about on a daily basis. I mean, there's huge fears about what if something ever happened to my wife or my daughter. But on a day-to-day basis, you know what the greatest fear for me is? It always comes back to money. Am I going to have enough? What, if, what about this expense coming out? What if something breaks in the house? What if the car? Money, because I look to money for control and security. So money's not really about money. It's about me being in control, me feeling secure. But it's a poor source for those things because it can be taken, it can be lost, it can be used up. But God promises something that puts all of our stuff in perspective. And our stuff becomes the tools for worship rather than the objects of our worship. Because here's the thing, if you love money... You will never be able to love your brothers and sisters. If you, if you fall into the love of money, that first command way back at the beginning to let brotherly love continue, you can't do it. You can't love them both because if you, if you love money, then brothers and sisters and strangers, you're never going to have the, the margin or the interest to actually be able to sacrificially love other people. You won't, you won't have the capacity, you probably won't have the desire. So, so managing our money well is vital to obeying the command to love our neighbor to let brotherly love continue. Because if if we don't, we won't have the margin or the capacity to help. See, contentment, based on God's promise of care and provision, is what frees us from the love and trust in money. Ultimately, we have to change the object of our worship. See, ultimately, God will not compete with your money. If it's all His... We should respond generously when he asks us to do with it, whatever he calls us to do with it. It's also true that money, when it's used properly, creates and sustains community like nothing else. The Bible is not anti-wealth. In fact, the Bible sees a picture of flourishing that comes when, when money is used and stewarded wisely. Jesus actually says to use money on earth to make friends, to bless people, to to love people. And, and families require resources, right? They require economic engines. This is why generosity in the local church matters so much. It's what enables us and empowers us as a church family to, to care for one another and for our city. You see, the secret to contentment isn't just having a bit more. Because that's the carrot that's always held That If I just have a little bit more, I'll be content. Now, the secret to contentment is passionately worshiping and trusting the one who has it all and owns it all. Now, let me say that again. The secret to contentment isn't just having a bit more. It's passionately worshiping and trusting the one who owns it all. But the question is, why should I trust God? Why, why should I trust like that? How can I trust like that? How can we take the risk of loving those who are hard to love? How can we take the risk of inviting strangers into our life? How can we take the risk, the the cost, the sacrifice of of honoring marriage when marriage seems so hard at times and and walking away just seems so much easier? How can we take the the, the risk of of living according to God's design for sexuality when when temptation is so strong? Of, Of being content when it seems like we never have enough? How can we really trust Jesus in those moments? Why is he worthy of a trust like that? And the answer actually comes at the end of verse 5. He says, For Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that that little word never, it it translates the strongest possible way of negating something in the the Greek language. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. There's not not a, a more strong, powerful way of saying never. It's as if Jesus is saying, I will never, 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 ever, ever leave you, ever. That's the force of that verse. He will never leave you. You see, money and sex and comfort, they all make that same promise. I'll never leave you. I'm never going to let you down. If you just stick with me, if you worship with me, uh, I'll never let you down. But only Jesus can keep that promise because he's the only one who has defeated death. He's the only one who has overcome it. All of those other things will eventually betray you, and as David Foster Wallace said, they will eat you alive. There's only one who, when you worship him, he sets you free, who says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. Only Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that you and I would never have to be forsaken if we trust in him. And that's where this kind of life-altering, life-transforming worship comes from, because when you see Jesus, when you treasure Jesus In that way, when you see what he's done for you, when you see the strength of his promise that not even death can separate you, nothing will separate you from him, then you're transformed. When you revel in, when you rejoice in that bedrock truth that he will never, never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you, ever, then we can confidently say, verse 6, that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear for what can man do to me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you have given us this bedrock promise that you will never, ever leave us or forsake us. And I pray that together as a church family, we would have at the center of our life together just an incredible trust in that promise. And that it would allow us to live lives that are shaped by the worship of you in every way that we would love one another, that we would care for strangers, that we would look out for those who are mistreated, that we would honor you and that in our marriage and our money and all these things. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.